Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about politics. Oh, surprise, surprise. Of course, this show is about faith and politics, and we're going to get into it with our guest about rural politics versus city politics and how that is affected on a national scale. I have my guest on who has a new book called Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. Now, before everybody who doesn't live inside Nebraska tunes out, what I want to say is that this book is very much a good example of the direction, trajectory that a lot of rural states have gone in America. So I have Ross Benish on. He is a journalist who has written for Entertainment Weekly, the Lincoln Journal Star, Rolling Stone, the Wall Street Journal, and more. He's from Brainerd, Nebraska, and he's written the the book I just referred to, Rural Rebellion. Ross, thanks for joining us. It's good to be on the program. So your book talks about Nebraska, and you're pretty familiar with the politics from a very local level. When I say very local, I mean really small town. And also, as you've grown up and moved on into bigger cities, you've kind of been able to follow how politics works on a state level. So your insight on what's happened over the last several decades in Nebraskan politics is actually pretty insightful. And you also mix in the book with, uh, I wouldn't say mix in the book, a good portion of the book is sort of memoir material. What I loved about the book was that it resonated with me also coming from a small town, not from Nebraska, but a small town in rural America. And a lot of the ethos and sort of values and the way in which people look at, the the way in which, you know, like city folk, as we would say, look at those who are rural. Uh, It's very relevant to what we've experienced over the last four to six years with respect to our politics, especially in the age of Trump and post-Trump. There's still a residual effect of, you know, the country feeling polarized. So I feel like your book is pretty timely. And what what I want to do in terms of this conversation is start off with a little bit, like, just give us a little bit of your bio growing up in rural America and in in particular in Brainerd, Nebraska. Oh, sure thing. So, in Brainerd, Nebraska, it's where I spent the first 19 years of my life. I you know, lived in a ranch house just a few blocks south of the public school there. Our school was consolidated because all the other small towns in the region had shrunk and their schools had closed. So they sent everyone you know, from their schools to ours and it was called East Butler, which is you know, a consolidated name. And me and all my siblings went to that school. I start with that because that was a huge part of the town. We didn't have a whole lot of institutions. You had the bar, and you had church, and you had the school, and uh, a few other things. But that's that's mostly it. My my dad had a plumbing business in town. I, I worked for him uh, during the summers growing up. While I also played baseball, sports were a big part of the life. And after I graduated from that school and left town, I, I went to Lincoln, where I went to the largest state university in Nebraska. And I always stayed there for five years before moving to Detroit and to New York City, where I live now. The thing about Brainerd is that it's so small, you know, just 300 people that Lincoln 
was closer to New York City than it was to Brainerd in so many ways. Because, mm. you know, you knew everyone and there was no stoplights and wide streets. And it, it was pretty ideal for a kid who wanted to play sports and be out all the time in nature. Yeah. Was the experience, like, did you have um, towns nearby that were like roughly the same size so that there was like a grouping of towns that sort of had the same experience? Yeah, yeah. There were there were definitely towns nearby, like eight miles in one direction was a town called Dwight. If you went 12 miles in another direction, there's David City. That was like, that was a little bigger. That was closer to 3,000 people. Mm. Little towns of like 100 to 200 people scattered all throughout. And, um, you know, your friends were often in, in those towns because there was only like five other people my in my age mm-hmm. in Brainerd yeah. at the time I was growing up. So, yeah, um, yeah they definitely had a similar experience. I, but our town was fortunate that we had the high school. So we were able to weather the depopulation a lot better than some of the others where Um, they had to bust their kids to us. Yeah, okay. So I sort of prefaced it a little bit with like, you know, hey, this story, this book resembles what's happening at large in America. So it's a little bit of a microcosm. But I don't know if you wanted to elaborate more than I could on that. Like why, why is a book about Nebraska of appeal to people who don't live in Nebraska or for that matter specifically care about Nebraskan politics? So that's a good question. You know, I, I wrote the book because it had such a bigger thing to say about America in general, you know, beyond just mm-hmm. what's happened in Nebraska, where, you know, 1.8 million people live. I wrote about Nebraska specifically just because that's where I've lived and that's what I know. And I wanted to mm-hmm. write about something I was familiar with and passionate about. But everything that's happened in Nebraska has happened in uh, Kansas. Uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Missouri, uh, Wyoming, even parts of Colorado, West Virginia. You know, it, it's uh, any state with a large rural voting block and where there's low population density has seen their politics changed in, in similar ways to Nebraska. I, I believe there's a mm-hmm. you know good reason why partisanship and population density have only become more intertwined. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's kind of what I'm getting at at the heart of this book, why these states have really turned their backs on the Democratic Party. Yeah. Well, speaking of specifically partisanship, I didn't know this about Nebraska until I read your book about there's like officially no labels or parties in the state legislature. Is that is that right? Yep, that's true. Since the 1930s, we have the... How does that even work? So, um... We're the nation's only nonpartisan unicameral legislature, and it works pretty well, I I believe, compared to most state houses. Uh, You know, people definitely know what party the like state senators are registered to. And a lot of issues will still vote down party lines. Like if there's a a vote coming up on like an immigration bill, you'll still see Republicans vote one way and Democrats vote another. But the parties themselves are less involved. There's no minority or majority party. There's no whip. It's just everything carries out in a a different process where it's focused more on the issues. Now, it has become more partisanized effectively over the last 20 years than it was when it was set up this way. And that's due to various reasons that we could get into if you want to. But um, it still has the ability to um, bring people together in strange coalitions that I don't think would be possible if names were on the ballots officially. Mm. Okay. So it's the function, it's more of the function, not that there aren't Republican uh, persons in in the seats. Yeah. And, and there used to be a, a, a lot of, like, there was just a lot of informal norms about 
people being independent from their party. I mean, you would see mm-hmm. state senators who were appointed by governors vote against the governor who appointed them, but those norms have vanished and it, it's become you know more partisan like you see in Congress or like you see in, in, in other states. Mm-hmm. But they still function, I, I believe, better because of it. And there's definitely still people from both parties trying to keep alive those nonpartisan norms. Yeah. The single house thing, I think, is even crazier than the nonpartisan thing, though, because every bill gets a hearing, gets a public hearing, and they're able to move legislation a lot quicker. You know, the the reason we have the single house legislature was a cost cutting move to cut taxes during the Depression. That's how it got passed. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it's efficient government. Huh. We had two house system before then, and people obviously wanted to lower taxes during the Great Depression when they had no income. and, And that was one way to reduce uh, government spending. Uh, okay. Interesting. That's an interesting way. Maybe we can apply that elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think a lot of states would benefit from a single yeah. house. There's a lot of redundancy. Yeah. yeah, and it's the only state in the union, right, that does yep. this? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, that was, that was like news for me. I was like, really? Okay, that's cool. I, I have a friend, uh, one of our co-authors for the book that we just wrote, he's from Nebraska, and he probably has mentioned it to me, but I didn't really sort of get the... Uh, application of it or the sort of ramifications of understanding it that way. So I'm I'm glad I kind of learned that through through your book. So one of the one of the things that sort of resonates throughout the book that or at least resonated with me was this sort of dichotomy between the attitudes of rural people. And I don't think it's unfair to say that, you know, even though you're from Nebraska that you can not speak for, but speak to very similar values that other rural people have, even people in larger cities that aren't, you know, metropolises or, you know, New York City or DC or Chicago or whatever. People do tend to share a lot of similar values when you don't live in congested areas. You know, obviously that's a simplistic way of putting it in my words, but it resonated with me that you were able to identify very pointedly your experience living in a big city and your memory back to Brainerd and to Nebraska in that small town. Like, it seems like you haven't rejected it. You haven't said, oh, you know, those were the the former days, you know, where I used to believe one thing. And now that I live in a city, I believe another. Um, although there's a little bit of, you know, you've shifted your beliefs and things, but like you've held on to the values of the people in the sense that, uh, I should say it this way, you, you've held on to the valuing of people who are making a living, living in community in ways that are just very functionally different from the people that you that you currently live around now. And I found that to be pretty refreshing because usually what I hear is, oh, I used to live this way, believe this way, go to this kind of church, experience life this way. And now that I've grown up and matured, I realize that, you know, the world is more complex and therefore, you know, all that I grew up with was wrong. Yeah. And, and you definitely don't take that approach. Well, thank you. I'm glad it didn't come off that way because I have also read a lot of books that uh, are like that. I didn't want to, you know, just on my hometown because I I still, (laughs) I still like it a lot. I still, you know, have a lot of friends there and my family's still there. And and I think there's a lot of beauty to those places. So I hope that came out. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the, the subtitle of the book is How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. You know, you could have written about a lot of different elements of, you know, that that experience in Nebraskan politics. But the idea that it became a Republican stronghold, I think anybody would look at that subtitle and say, oh, well, that's definitely can be a proxy for how rural politics did that as well. Mm-hmm. 
when you have, in your experience, was very similar to mine, whereas there wasn't like, hey, you know, like the, you you grew up Catholic, right? Yep. And I grew up, I grew up Protestant in a conservative church, and we were never officially Republicans. In fact, my parents were Democrats for a good portion of my early childhood, even though they didn't vote Democrat at that, at that level. And mm-hmm. you actually explain why people who were otherwise Democrats ended up sort of voting Republican because of certain issues and because of certain weaponization. Yeah, and, and that's why abortion is the first chapter in the book. You know, yeah. the, the church was such an important part of Brainerd, and I think it did a lot of good. It brought the community together. I mean, you would have events in the church where you would get to be around people that you, you wouldn't be around if you just, you know, sat at home and, and ne- never experienced that. I mean, it, it fed people. There was uh, social services that were funded through donations to the church. There's a lot of greatness, and I don't want to undermine that greatness, but there's also a lot of politicization, especially when you talk about like culture war things like abortion, where sermons just kind of became this perpetual infomercial for the Republican Party's stance on that issue. And mm-hmm. I expect the church to be involved with current events, but there were like a lot of, there's always a lot of current events going on at any time. A pastor could talk about anything. And um, abortion was talked about an awful lot. And when you have this center, you have this you know organization that people are getting a lot of fulfillment from, and it's a huge part of their lives. When you hear that from the pulpit, it, it just certainly affects your political beliefs too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as that was happening, each party kind of bifurcated where you used to have pro-life Democrats and used to have pro-choice Republicans as, as candidates. Um, that was very common, like in the 70s, for instance, and even through some of the 80s. But by the 90s, especially during the 2000s, it was like, yeah. you're a Democrat, you're, you know, pro-choice, you're Republican, you're pro-life. And they got a lot of Christian voters, like Catholic voters, you know, who I grew up with, on that issue. The, the Democrats became untenable for them. And um, in church, it just kept reinforcing that yeah. if you don't want to sin, you should vote for the Republicans who um, you know, are trying to make this thing that we view as death illegal. Do you recall anybody as you were growing up and, and you were kind of experiencing this, did you have anybody that you knew that sort of rebuffed against that at all? Like, we're kind of like, they're really talking about this issue a lot and we're kind of tired of it. Or does, was this something that you kind of notice in retrospect? I noticed it more in retrospect. And I definitely noticed it like by the time I was in college, I, I was still mm-hmm. attending maths every week when I was at college. And, you know, you're talking to college kids at a university, maybe they're more off put by that sort of thing than a, than a youngster yeah. from Brainerd. But I didn't get the sense that people were really turned off by it. And attendance at our church was still fantastic, you know, all throughout my childhood for for just a little town they they supported. There was two churches. It was also a Methodist church. I mean, we were only 300 people. We had um, two functioning churches in our town. So no, I don't think anyone was like leaving yeah. because of it, but I didn't hear much disgruntled. I, I just feel like, I also didn't hear people openly talk about abortion much when it wasn't presented in a church context. Like if I was at the bar or at a high school football game or hanging out with my friends or their parents, it didn't, come up all the time. I feel like it was just kind of internalized. Mm. Yeah. Well, and you know, my experience there was very similar. It was, you know, they would, they would talk about things and, and issues and whatever. And I, I grew up a little bit before you. And so the rise of the Christian majority was at the moral majority and the Christian coalition, those mm-hmm. were uh, Christian talk radio. And a lot of those things were very much part of my growing up years. 
And I can still remember the way in which we were galvanized in a, in a particular direction. And it wasn't until probably five to 10 years ago that I realized that a lot of Republicans were pro-choice in the 70s and, be, and before. Yeah, I mean, it didn't come to my attention as much until, um, I mean, I started to realize it a little bit at the end of college, but then it became much more clear to me researching this book and reading about like the history yeah. of these laws. And, um, you know, I mean, even Ronald Reagan signed you know, an abortion law in his state prior to Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. becoming nationalized. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when you are, I can imagine that we have listeners, I mean, we have listeners all over the world and we have some in rural and some in cities and so forth. And I can imagine that you have conversations with people in the city that, or, or maybe you don't have them about the rural experience, but when people maybe disparage people who live in the country or they maybe come to you and be like, what was it like? Or something like that. I mean, there's probably a lot that you remind them that they're missing or that you sort of inform them. It's like, hey, these people aren't just like anti-women, you know, they they don't just care about birth. They do care about taking care of women who are, you know, or single mothers and, and so forth. Like, what is it that you sort of, say to people who uh, in your current community now, you know, the city. I, I get this a lot after Trump, especially. I, I have to remind people that, you know, 70 plus million Americans don't have the same views on everything. And, you know, we can't brandish them all as hmm. a misogynist or conspiracy yeah. theorist. You know, those, those people exist. They're yeah, very public. Yeah. But, that, you know, there's a lot of other people who I believe are very good and charitable. That's why in the book I write about people like my brother, who was a valedictorian of his class, who had a daughter in high school, a very young age, you know, raised her, treats everyone in my family very well, got a doctorate, very successful person. And, you know, he's a Republican Trump supporter. Clearly, he has some uh, interests that are different than mine. I, I tend to lean a little left of center. I don't see any good in lecturing him about it or or calling him ignorant or anything. You know that he's a, he's a person I like to uphold when I talk to people to say, well, you know, not all Republicans are what you think they are, or, or, or not all people from small town are these rubes. You know, like my brother's probably a lot smarter than you are, if I'm being honest. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not you, but like I'm saying, yeah, I, I'll yeah, tell no, it to I people when mean, they when yeah. they try to disparage yeah. um, those from small towns, and I try to share too on how um, the sense of community there, it can be overwhelming at times when everyone knows your name. And like, sometimes I did want a little bit of anonymity when stuff would happen in my personal life and it was impossible to keep it yeah. private uh, in, a, in a town like that. And, and my mom was very much into gossip. So literally spread- everyone was praying for you, weren't they? Yes, yes. <laughs> Which can be good, but can also be like, you know, I don't want to be reminded by the, about this every time, yeah, every single conversation yeah. I have. I'd like to just, yeah. you know, walk down the street and, and right. not You're more than anymore. just the, the struggle you're going through right now. You yeah, know, yeah. People can people talk to you well. about other things, yeah. But, but uh, what I like about that sense of community, though, is um, if someone's sick in town, people do come together for them. Like, they'll yep, have an yep. event at the church, and, you know, they'll pray for them. They'll bring them food. I mean, they'll do whatever they can. They'll have a fundraiser. Um, you know, maybe they'll have a street dance, something like that. Uh, like the stuff like my parents had a tree that was struck by lightning and it like crashed right in front of the house. And before they could even like call someone to remove it, um, a friend of my dad's like who's in construction just brought over his equipment and started like hauling it off like the next day. I mean, that just was a super nice thing he did because he was a friend and a neighbor. And it's harder to develop those connections in a city. I've, I've lived in cities uh, for about like the past decade now. It's a lot harder to know your yeah. neighbors when there's so many of them yeah. and they're moving constantly. So yeah. those are the beautiful things I like about small towns. I, you know, People are relying yeah. on each other in many cases. Yeah. 
Well, and even even if you have friends who are construction workers, you'd probably need a permit to move the tree. Oh yeah, in most well, yeah. Here, and, and you would have like double parked, and everyone would be honking at you. Oh my yeah. gosh, <laughs> yeah. Doing anything so, out here is a hassle. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm I'm definitely a thorough uh, country boy, if you will, uh, to to use the phrase, because I I don't like city parking. I don't like city, you know, one way streets, and it's just a very frustrating experience for me when I when I drive there. But uh, that's kind of an, a, a digression. Um, immigration is, yep. of course, has of course been weaponized by Donald Trump, and he was not the first person to do it. He did so with a particular pointed rhetoric. But it has been growing over the last few decades. Can you go over a little bit about how that has worked? Because in Nebraska, more so than where I grew up in West Virginia, immigration played a different or more noticed role to, I guess you could call natives. Yeah. And, and, you know, these are examples in the book where I'm writing about how these political movements in states like Nebraska helped enable someone like Trump because some of this stuff was happening well before him. A story I share in the book is in the 2006 governor race in Nebraska. You had uh, Tom Osborne, legendary football coach, like most popular person in the state. He had just served three terms in Congress. He ran for governor against Dave Heineman, who um, was popular within that party, but relatively unknown throughout much of the state. And Heineman defeated him in the primary. And the biggest thing they differed on was giving um, in-state tuition to undocumented kids who grew up in the U.S. but were brought here illegally by the parents. They're known as dreamers today. Osborne said they should get the in-state tuition. Heinemann said they should not. And he came after that hard and that helped him win the primary. And um, ever since then, Nebraska just kind of kept shifting to the right. And during that time, we had seen um, a big increase in the number of immigrants who came to work in like feedlots in meatpacking towns. Uh, towns like Schuyler, where there's a, a big beef processing center outside of town, have um, basically become all foreign labor in those places. And, you know, that's definitely got a reaction from some people who wanted things to stay the same. And the Republicans in their primary contest have latched onto that as an issue to drum up votes on, you know, to say we need to ship these people out to prevent illegal immigration. Um, they've passed, we were the last state in the country, for instance, to give uh, driver's licenses to DACA youth. We um, sued the federal government to end DACA. Um, so that, that's an issue that I believe around 2006, uh, we really shifted to the right. At George Bush was trying to reform immigration during that time with the help of a Nebraskan, Chuck Hagel. But the other element of that party went in the other direction. And um, you know they did that at a time when that party became much more dominant in Nebraska and, and Democrats became less competitive. So effectively, who wins the GOP primary will win the uh, general election in Nebraska in most races. And when you see going far to the right on immigration helps you, candidates tend to do that. Our current governor did the same thing. He ran for Senate in 2006 and lost. He ran on a pragmatic approach of um, giving people like work licenses. It was a very business-minded approach. Uh, voters didn't seem to like that. He went to the very far right when he came back eight years later, and that helped him win the governor primary. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I, I often wonder why people make changes like that because you want to stick to your values, and I realize that you're allowed to change your values, especially, mm -hmm. you know, eight years. That's a good amount of time to sort of reconsider where your position is. But if it, just hearing the way you put it, it sounds like possibly it was a matter of, I just want to get elected. Um, I think it was uh, absolutely that. 
Yeah. Because it was a coincidence that worked for other people before him and then he yeah, flipped, right. you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it is a popularity contest to some extent. I mean, I realize yeah. that it's more complex than that, but, you know, appeal is important when you want to be elected. Oh, absolutely. But then it gives you the sense that they're, you know, just using that thing conveniently that yeah. that person may not actually believe that. They just want to, you know, yeah. turn out people in a primary and get them angry. Yeah, well, and I'm torn about that. I'm like, all right, well, let's say he's a little bit more open about immigration like I am and like it sounds like you might be. Yeah. Uh, and, and But he uses the rhetoric to appeal. Like, I guess it's harmless if he's going to be more pro-immigration even though he somehow appealed to less uh, or anti-immigration to, for lack of a better word, uh, people. So there, there's a sense in which I'm like, I have two minds about that. On the other, you know, that that appeal just kind of, eh, I don't well, know. Well, he held up his promise on that to those voters, though. I mean, uh, okay. that's why we were the last state in the country to give those driver's licenses out. And okay. He made a statement like a month ago about withholding COVID vaccines from illegal immigrant meatpacking workers. And then he got called out on that, and then he met, he had to come out and say, well, I didn't mean to say it like that. Um, but he, mm. he actually said that, and um, which is... Even if you yeah. even if you want to ship away everyone, that's just bad public health policy. <laughs> right, of course. I mean, you got to get everyone vaccinated yeah, if you yeah. want to defeat this thing. Yeah. You know, another another topic you talk about in your book is the tribalism that, that seems to happen, um, that the way in which politics has sort of evolved over the last couple of decades is it's being weaponized, one, um, where uh, the issues like immigration and abortion are being are being used to rally people uh, to a particular person or even party. But also on, on the other side of that, the people have become more tribal. We've attached ourselves to these identities, to these, you know, sort of political blocks, if you will. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like um, football, you know. I, I, I've said that in, in Nebraska, people, you know, root for Republicans, you know, to beat Democrats the same way they root for like the Huskers to beat Iowa. And then, of course, I say the Huskers um, are actually more like the Democrats because they never win anything anymore. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we've uh, gotten into these. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how to put this. We, we've gotten into like us versus them situations, mm-hmm. which um, makes it tough to find common ground, even on issues where there may be bipartisan support for something like um, like marijuana legalization, for instance. If you ask most people in Nebraska if they should decriminalize it or make, you know, let's say medical marijuana legal, I think you'll see a lot of people from both parties. But then the Republican Party within that state doesn't have that position on that issue and people want to support their party. So they'll support their party even when they disagree with them on that issue. They don't, you know, want to get in the way of their party. And and you you could see that, you know, on the Democratic side uh, on things too. So, yeah, it's... uh, I believe that's why you see a lot of exceptions when, when you see like ballot initiatives and you see people come together and they'll like pass something that one party really hated. And um, mm-hmm. that's because they're able to take out some of the tribalism when it's not like R versus D. But man, when it's yeah. party versus party, it, it it's hard to have effective government right now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I know that uh, in Pennsylvania and in many other states, there were a lot of ballot initiatives that that came on in the last election in twenty and twenty twenty, in part because people were fed up with you know government, you know, basically the both parties sort of not getting anything done in one area or another, um, or or in more than one area. So, you know, those definitely I think that's on the rise a little bit. It seems to me like probably a good idea. 
at the same time, I wonder how many people are informed because of these these statements and you know ballot initiatives can be written in such a way that it can be confusing. Oh yeah, sometimes it requires like a PhD to understand these things. <laughs> I remember one like six years ago, four or six years ago or whatever it was, and I read it and I was like, oh yeah, I got to read this twice because I think there's a double negative or there's like, we're going to remove something that used to repeal or something like that. And I was just like, wait, what is actually happening as a result? I had to like think through it. They need like a high school English teacher to line edit these things before <laughs> they they go out. Um, there, there was Nebraska just passed a ballot initiative to remove slavery language from our state constitution. And like 20 some percent of people voted to keep it and Democrats reacted like, look how you know terrible and red, you know, rednecky the state is that we live in. And I was like, you know, if you read that thing, it wasn't clear that's what you were doing, especially for someone, you know, if you think of people like my parents who didn't go to college, um, these sentences weren't constructed in a like very clear way. I think a lot of people thought they were doing the right thing by voting against it. You know, it's um, <laughs> it, it's hard to, um, yeah, you know, get the issue across clearly and be legally sound so that the secretary of state allows it to pass. And um yeah, people definitely get confused on those yeah. things. Yeah, for sure, sure. And there's people donating money, of course, to make people confused on on these, you know, a lot of political campaigning when they say don't pass this thing, it's going to do X, Y, and Z. Right, yeah, of course. So I, I want to switch to one comment that you made in the book. Um, actually, you were quoting, I think it was Peter Weiner about Christians being highly seduced by power. And I think he was, it was, or maybe if I'm thinking of the wrong person, it was a uh, former Reagan administration person. And, and maybe it wasn't a huge part of the book, but it does seem to resonate, one, with our listeners. And second, it resonated with me because I feel like over the past four, I guess, five years, you know, with the rise of Trump, Trump really did use Christians to get his way and made all sorts of statements, promises, whatever, alliances in order to just, you know, seduce them so that he could have power. And so it resonated with me. I didn't know if you wanted to speak any further into that comment at all, or, or give, I'll just give you well, a Well, yeah, the reason I wrote that comment is because prior to Trump, and for like the last like generation leading up to him, when, you know, a poll would go out by like Gallup or Pew or, you know, a, a survey company like that, and they'd say like, you know, does a politician's moral character or personal actions affect the way you support them. And like evangelicals and, and Catholics too were more sensitive to like personal character issues mm-hmm. than any other group. And after Trump, it completely flipped where they they even they self-described um, you know themselves. This isn't me putting words in the mouth. This is them answering surveys. They became more likely to say, well, we don't care about what that person does as long as they, you know, as as we don't give us what we want for uh, the laws and issues that we support. Um, and that's just a quick reversal over a short time span, which had been a long trend building up of that in the opposite direction. So um, Trump was tempting because you, you could get tax cuts, you could get um, conservative judges, you know, he would um, stand up to forces that they believe are against them that are secular, like the press or universities or, you know, whatever the issue is. Um, But the trade-off is this guy's kind of a monster and they went along with that. So I I just thought that quote that that Republican official shared was on the money in it. I just thought it was interesting too, because that guy worked for both George Bush's and Reagan. Yeah. 
I've recently seen, I think it was probably in the last six months. It had to do, yeah, because it was leading up to the election. And you talk about this. So I'm going to lead in with my own story here for a second. Is there were a lot, there were a lot of people on my, you know, Facebook newsfeed that were basically lamenting and sort of putting down Republicans and rural people and country folk, whatever you want to say, because they tend to be the people who vote against their own interests. Mm-hmm. And that's often, you know, what that what they mean by that is that they're usually the ones who are the recipients of welfare aid, things that, you know, programs that generally Democrats are in favor of. Or their states tend to get more funding for education, something that the you know Democrats are typically more in favor of, and of course you know the the bigger thing, which is oh they believe Trump's going to save the economy, but he really hasn't, and he's done a terrible job, and you know you know Democrats tend to do better at rescuing Republicans from the economy. I never I realize re- Republican economic policy. I realize that's particularly debatable, but this concept of voting against their own interests, where does that ethos, where does that mindset come from? It comes from liberals believing that their interests are universal and everyone should have them. <laughs> I, I, I've tried Fair to point. push back on that in, in my book. You know, I could say Nebraskans are voting against my interests maybe, but clearly they have different interests than me. Why right, is that? Right. You know, that's what I think is more interesting. Um, yeah, that voting against their own interests, you know, I, I wish people who say that would actually think what the interests are of the people they're describing. You know, if you think about like my hometown, like Brainerd, sure, they got more um, tax dollars per capita than like cities on the East Coast did because there's ag support there and schools and roads Mm. and few people uh, to fund them. Um, But a lot of the voters there aren't asking for government support. You know, they, they prefer to be self-governed as much as they're possible, as much as possible. And they may be happy to receive it, but they'll vote against that as well. And I don't think they're necessarily hypocritical because that's not like what's important to them. And, and, you know, someone may say they've been conned to believe that, um, reducing the size of government or preventing abortions, um, is in their interest. But to the people I grew up with, those things are really in their interest, reducing government spending, cutting taxes, um, Mm -hmm making abortion illegal. I mean, who am I to tell them what their interests are? You know what I mean? Yeah. But a lot of the coverage of these areas, I mean, going back to like Thomas Frank's book and before that too, is just kind of people thumbing their nose at uh, people who I grew up with for saying like, you know, how dare you uh, vote for these people who are going to, uh, you know, destroy your way of life. But yeah. a lot of the people who say that haven't spent time in these areas anyways. Speaking of the, the idea of interest, you know, there was a comment you made in your book about there's not a lot of New Yorkers visiting Nebraska on field trips, you know, but you do have people from the country, you know, going to D.C. and going to the city to have experiences and understand what life is like there. But it's not really reciprocal. Yeah. So in um, you're in a city, you're fortunate to have a lot of the services you need to get by. And like if I felt like I didn't need to, I, I could never leave New York City and get like all my food and entertainment and everything in the city. And it, it, not just New York City, you could do it in Omaha too. But when you're like in a small town, you have to go out to experience those things. You probably don't have like national history museums in your town. So if you want to experience that, you need to go to a bigger city. If you want to see a sporting event, if you need groceries in some cases, there's many reasons why someone in the country has to go to the city, but the reverse mm. is there's not as much incentive. So, you know, these places where I live now, like New York, which represent like an overwhelming share of our nation's media coverage, they get in their bubble because they don't necessarily have to leave it. 
And, you know, there's definitely a bubble in my hometown, too. I'm not denying that by any means. But they have more reasons why they have to get out and explore things. And the curiosity from the cities about to the rural areas didn't seem as great until Trump got elected. Mm. So the the local, there's polarization. It's been a word that's been thrown around a lot in the last four years. Polarization nationally, it doesn't seem to be as common locally, but it does exist. What do you, do, do you see any hope on the horizon? I mean, do you think we're going to have a President Biden, you know, unite us? Or do you think it's going to take a lot longer than one president? I think it'll take a lot longer than one president. I mean, we we need a few reforms, I, I think, to to help. And, and part of that may be uh, changing what makes things go viral on social media. Because as long as like Facebook and Twitter are structured the way they are, you know, extreme statements are incentivized and mm-hmm. are, are pulling people apart. And I'm not sure um, how you totally get around that right now. What gives me hope though is that there are is, the more local you get, like when you get down to like the mayor level or or county uh, commissioner level, um, there are people working across party lines and um, partisanship in those races matters less. I, I, I you know, the, I've been inspired by the Nebraska legislature. I believe more down ballot races should just have the party affiliation removed. I mean, that also helped get third party candidates in too, even if they weren't yeah. officially labeled as such, they'd be able to, you know, overcome this hurdle of this um, binary system we have. So yeah. um, talking to like mayors in Nebraska for this book uh, who, um, you know, you, you talk to someone who was like a Republican who uh, got the job because a Democrat endorsed them or vice versa. You know, that gave me hope. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, are you more optimistic or are you still stuck with pessimism? Like, are you kind of like, uh... You know, it's tough to be optimistic right now because I haven't been on an airplane for like over a year and I'm (laughs) struggling to get this vaccine that's kept me in my apartment. And like, we have all these other issues. But... I like to think we're, we're, we're near rock bottom. I don't expect there to be a paradise soon, but I, I think we can do better than what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe like a little bit better over the next like few years. So turning our corner might be what happens this year, but we're not, we're not out of the woods. No. Yeah. Okay. So how can our listeners reach you online? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, website. Give us all the details there. And uh, Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. So, um, well, my website is just rossbenish.com. Um, and I, I keep things pretty simple on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. I'm just uh, all those websites backslash Ross Benish. So nice. uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, my website, uh, my e- Gmail is Ross Benish at Gmail. Um, if you type in my full name as one word, you will find me. All right. Awesome. That's really good. Uh, I guess it's lucky that way. We will also put a link to all of those that you just mentioned on our show notes page. Um, so Ross, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Uh, listeners, the book is Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. It's not entirely about Nebraska. If you have any interest in the development of politics in the country over the last several decades, this is a great book to read. Ross, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's been fantastic being here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.